Uh, as we continue today with our series about understanding our emotions, uh, we're going to begin discussing some very specific emotions, and the first one I want to talk to you about is grief. Um, I can't totally say that. I didn't want to talk to you about grief necessarily, but I've been, um, I've, I kind of fought this one thinking maybe it would be better to, to start with an easier emotion or something that wasn't so heavy and so complex, but my mind kept coming back to this direction, and, and the truth is in the last few months, I have just been around a lot of grieving people, uh, more than usual, and, and so this, this emotion is never far from my mind these days, and so it seemed right to, to continue in that direction. Now, the good news is this. The good news is, in case you're thinking you're going to leave here today all like down and depressed, um, here's the good news. As powerful as the emotion of grief is, it does not have the final word in the life of a Christian. Okay, far from it, far from it. So talking about grief does not mean that you or I are going to leave here this morning in a state of, of depression. Grief is something that we cannot avoid talking about. And it's because grief is something that we can't avoid experiencing. Grief is inevitable for all of us. All of us will have to deal with grief at some point in our lives, and most of you here have already had some significant experience with it. The reason that grief is inevitable is that we live in a world where virtually nothing is permanent. Time brings change. And change brings loss. And grief, if you want to have just kind of an easy definition of it, grief is simply our emotional response to loss. It's our emotional response to loss. It's how we react. Two years ago, I got a call from uh, our district superintendent, uh, Mick Noel. And Mick told me that a number of churches had expressed interest in talking to our then associate pastor, Ben Landis, about becoming their senior pastor. And was it okay if... If, I allowed, if he could allow Ben to talk to those churches for that purpose. And my first thought was, am I allowed to say no to this request? I don't know. And I figured, I probably am not allowed to say no. So what I said was this. I said, you know, Mick, I've been kind of entertaining this ideal scenario for a while now where I preach for another 12 or 15 years, and, and during that time I gradually hand more and more responsibility over to Ben, and, and then when the time is right, Ben takes over completely, and he becomes a senior pastor, and I ride off into the sunset. And Mick said, brother, it never happens that way. And, um, and he was right. He was right. We harbor illusions that things in this world can stay the same forever. Our health our, uh, our family situation, our other relationships, our home, our neighborhoods, our communities, our church, our job, the ages of our children. But ultimately, we have to face the fact that these things are not permanent. They change, and it hurts us when they change. Ben is no longer here. Now, he's not gone forever. I just talked to him two days ago on the phone. I've seen him many times in the last two years. We roomed together at men's retreat, and yet the relationship is now physically more distant and Ben and I are now colleagues rather than being on a church staff together and so I have had to mourn that loss both personally and professionally. Grief is not always about death. You can grieve when you move from one neighborhood to another or your kids will grieve when they move from one school to another. You can grieve when you leave a job. Uh, we, you can grieve when you get a little older and, and your body no longer does the things that it used to do the way it did them. 
You know, you can grieve when you're young and you have a breakup with a longtime boyfriend or girlfriend. You go through grief. You can grieve when your life enters a new phase that you're not used to and you lose some things. Empty nest is a really good example of this. Sometimes I still walk outside on a crisp October morning and it just feels wrong that I'm not going to be attending a kid's soccer game or going to a band festival, you know, because my kids are now adults. But that's something that I've had to grieve. Moving on from that is a process of grieving. And then, of course, there are the big ones. Retirement. Well, some of you are saying, that's not a grief. No. Retirement is a process of grieving, even if you hated your job, because it is a loss of a familiar routine that has governed your life for about 30 years or more. Grieving the loss of a dream that doesn't come true, something you thought would always happen in your life, and now, yeah, obviously, it's not going to. That's grief. Grieving the end of a marriage that ends in divorce. And then, of course, the ultimate grief of losing a loved one to death. God has, has made us as people made in his image. He's given us the ability to connect, to form powerful attachments in life to ideas, to dreams, to places, to activities, and especially to other people. And, and because of the transitory and shifting nature of this world, these attachments are always being formed and broken and formed and broken. And the more powerful the attachment, the more painful and the more intense is the feeling of grief when the attachment is broken. One of the most profound expressions of this, to me at least, in, in modern times, was a line uh, from a Christian song that was on the radio maybe 15 years ago called Held. It was written by Natalie Grant, and it, was, it wasn't written by her, but it was sung by her about a friend who had suffered the death of a two-month-old child. And the lyric simply said this, this is what it means to be held, how it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. Grief, in its most potent form, feels like your heart is being ripped out. And at times it's almost unbearable. But this is not an abnormal thing. It's not an abnormal, it is perfectly normal and it is part of the human experience in this fallen world. Remember, our emotions are always telling us what we value. We learned that a couple of weeks ago, what is important to us. And the greater the value that our heart has assigned to something or to someone, the greater the experience of grief will be when we suffer its loss. Now when it comes to looking to grief in the Bible, it's hard to go wrong looking at the life of David because David, David not only experienced a ton of grief and a ton of loss in his life, all different kinds, but he also wrote about it a lot in the Psalms and, and we'll probably look at at least one of those Psalms next time or the next time we talk about grief. Uh, but for now, I want to take you to a particular experience in David's life, uh, one of those stories that he went through before he became king that tells us some things about the nature of grief and gives us at least a few hints of how we might start dealing uh, with this emotion. So turn to the book of 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and find chapter 30. 1 Samuel 30. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. I should be able to find it soon myself. Here it is. And I'm just going to read for you at this point the first six verses. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. 
David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. We'll go on with the story in a little while, but as we look at this passage, I just want to talk about three elements of grief. Three elements of grief. First, I want to talk about the complex nature of grief. Then I want to mention at least some of the dangers and opportunities that come with grief. And then lastly, I want to look at the ultimate answer to grief. Okay, so the complex nature of grief, some of the dangers and opportunities that come when we deal with grief, and then uh, talk a little bit about the ultimate answer to grief. And so today we're not going to talk very much about the, the, the nuts and bolts of how to process your grief. That'll have to wait for another week. But what I want to do today, my goal is really to give you a healthy perspective, kind of a bird's eye view in some ways, we'll get into it a little bit. I want to give you a healthy perspective on grief, what it is and how to deal with it. First of all, let's look at the complex nature of grief, because grief is not a simple thing. Let me give you a little historical background behind this passage here in 1 Samuel. David has been running for his life from King Saul at this point for years. And David has gotten to the point very recently where he has, had, he has really had it up to here with having to be a fugitive and running from Saul. Saul's trying to kill him. And so David has taken the radical step of leaving Israel and literally joining the army of, Israelite, of Israel's enemies, the Philistines. So he's now part of the Philistine army. And his, he's, he's dragged his men into this too. These are his best friends, his, his mighty men, his brothers in arms. And what they've done is they've kind of formed their own independent division of the Philistine army. And they're supposed to be serving the king of the Philistines. What they're doing, they're not, they're not attacking any Israelites like the, the king of the Philistines thinks that they're doing. What they're doing is they're attacking some of Israel's other enemies because now they have the chance to do that. But the whole time this is going on, David has been walking a very dangerous moral tightrope. He's really committing borderline treason against two countries at the same time. And he's been involving his men in this dangerous game that he's playing. And now upon returning from their most recent campaign, David and his men get into camp and they find out that a roving band of Amalekites has come through their camp and kidnapped all of their wives and children. And the Amalekites were not a friendly bunch. You might remember, they have been active enemies of Israel for hundreds of years. You might recall back in Moses' time, there was a time when the Israelites were headed toward the promised land and they were basically ambushed by a big army of people. And remember, they had a big bloody battle and Moses had to have his hands held up in the air by Aaron and Hur. And when he was holding up his hands, Israel prevailed. And when they came down, Israel was losing. That, that was the Amalekites. You might remember just a few chapters before this in 1 Samuel when God got mad at Saul because he told him to utterly destroy a certain army and its people and Saul hadn't done it. That was the Amalekites. So you can just imagine the horrible thoughts that are going through the mind of David and his men at the thought of their wives and their children being in the hands of these guys, the Amalekites. And we see here in verse 4 that they evidently assume the worst because the sadness of this verse is so immense. It says they wept until they had no more strength left to weep. Have you ever done that? I know some of you have because I've done it with you a couple of times. And of course, sadness is always the main emotion when it comes to grief, but sadness is almost never there by itself. Sadness is almost never alone in grief. There's certainly, in this case, there's certainly fear here. What's gonna happen? I mean, what's, what will happen to our loved ones? How will we go on without them? 
There's also anger. That's very obvious. The men naturally blame David for this tragedy, and even though they're his best friends, they're at the point now where they're talking about stoning him to death. So they're mad. And then think of the guilt. They had left their wives and children at the mercy of these vicious men, and think of the guilt that David must be feeling having dragged his men into this questionable ploy of fighting in the Philistine army and now seeing what that had led to. And you know what? Our grief is like that too. Our grief is just like that. It features sadness, but it's really a complex of many emotions. And, and, and despite what we learn, and some of you may have learned about the stages, you know, the phases of grief, and those are real, but these emotions don't just line up for us in single files so we can process them all one at a time. That's not what happens. Instead, they tend to come at us all at once. So we've got fear. How will I go on? I was depending on this person. I was depending on this job. I was depending on this relationship. What will the future hold now? Anger. Whose fault is this? How could God have allowed this to happen? It's not fair. Guilt. Why didn't I do more? Why didn't I pray more? Why didn't I show up at the right time? Why why didn't I call? Why wasn't I a better friend? Why wasn't I a better husband, a better wife? Why didn't I see this coming? These emotions are normal. These emotions are normal. They're not unusual at all. In fact, Sometimes there's another one. Sometimes in the midst of a great loss, there's even a sense of relief. You know, when, when we got the empty nest and our kids left home, I was so sorry. I had a tough time with it. I was sorry that the kids were gone, but at the same time, it was nice to have my bathroom back, you know, and to have some food in the fridge for once. But even in the big ones, even after a death, the relief after a long bout of suffering the relief after maybe a difficult struggle with dementia, or even the relief of being spared a crippling financial expense, and then the guilt because you feel the relief. And then, of course, with a loved one who knows the Lord, what else is there? There's joy. There's the joy of that person's entry into Jesus' direct presence, and that creeps in there too, and that kind of joins the pile of emotions. But again, these conflicting emotions, and you feel them all at the same time, And it's kind of strange, but it's not perverse or inappropriate. It's normal. These are a normal thing. And God understands that you're feeling all of them at the same time. And you need to own them and admit them and face each emotion honestly. We'll talk about that a little bit more next week and a little bit more in a couple minutes. Let me also just point out at this time just a few of the dangers that come with grief. Because there are grief, when you're going through grief, it's a dangerous time. Not just emotionally, but spiritually. There are a lot of ways to get stuck in the process of dealing with grief, and when that happens, you don't really find the healing and the help that you need, and you have a lot of trouble moving on with your life. One of the dangers has to do with this anger that you see here. In verse 6, you look at David's men. They're, they're, they're talking together about stoning him to death. And of course, this would have accomplished nothing at all. Not to mention that David loved these men. He had risked his life for them on so many occasions. But you know what? When you're hurting... When you're really grieving and hurting and you need to project your pain in some direction, sometimes the easiest thing to do is to find someone to blame. And there are people that never move on from their grief because they are focused on this anger and they stay there. They blame the doctors. They blame family members. They blame themselves. Often they blame God And rather than have it out with God, they just feed off that anger and they nurse it until it becomes resentment and bitterness. And the unforgiveness that results from that can drive them away from the people who love them 
and leave them in an angry hole of despair. Another way to get stuck is, is to wallow in your deep sadness because it feels like an obligation that you have to do it. You rightly realize that your sadness is because of the great value of the person that you are missing, but you take it a step further and you decide that to let go of that person and to go on with life without them is a betrayal of their memory. You know what? They would never, ever want you to feel that way. Another thing some people do when they can't let go of, of a person or of a relationship or even of a season of life is that they hold on to things. And when I say things, I mean material things. When you watch that reality show about the folks that hoard stuff until they can't even walk around in their house anymore, you know, so often, in fact, I would say more than half the time, they are dealing with the recent loss. And they, they take that broken connection. No, grief is a broken connection. It's a broken attachment. And they take that broken attachment in their lives and they try to fill it with stuff. And they try to deal with their own fear of death by attaching themselves to this world the only way they know how, which is to get more and more stuff. And you don't have to be a hoarder to lose yourself to sentimentality or to create such a, a shrine, either in your heart or in your house, to something or someone that you've lost. And just to live there trying to dull the pain as eventually the world moves on without you. Those are ways to get stuck. Those are some of the dangers. But what, what are the opportunities? What are the good opportunities that come with grief? Because there are some. One is just the opportunity to connect to the people that love you. The opportunity to really connect to the people who love you. Remember, God made you to connect to others. And when, when you're grieving the loss of a person or even a thing or a season or a job or a pastime, you're suffering from a broken connection, an attachment that is no longer there. Though you feel that it should be, but it's not. And the best place to go to recharge this relational deficit that you're feeling is not to a habit, not to an addiction, not into some dark room where you sit alone by yourself for hours in your grief. Some people go to those places, but those are false connections that will not cover up your loss. No, instead you go to other people. To the connections that are still there and haven't gone away. God made you to need other people. And you need them to help you process your feelings, which means you need to talk about these things with them. Yes, you need time alone. We all need time alone sometimes, even when we're grieving. But it is dangerous to have too much time alone. As I look at this passage, I think, you know what? It may be that talking together about stoning David may have been the thing that kept those guys from actually doing it. You know? It may not have been the most edifying conversation in the world, but at least they were talking it out. And by the next day, you'll notice that after grieving together, they could fight on the same team again. But even more importantly, grief is not just a chance to reconnect to the people in your life. Grief is a chance to deepen your relationship with God. And if you look at verse 6, you'll see that is exactly what David did. It's exactly what he did. And I, realize, I want you to notice the exact wording here of what David did. Notice that David did not just find strength merely in God in a simple way. He didn't find his strength to go on merely by thinking about God or having the right ideas about God and what he was doing. Certainly David had some good ideas about God, but that isn't what did it. He didn't simply add God to his reasoning process and figure out the best way to tackle his grief because after all, God exists. No. And let me tell you, when you're really grieving, your brain does not have that kind of analytical capacity anyway. It just doesn't. 
I found in the depths of my grief after suddenly losing my mom that at that moment, three things mattered. God was real, God was good, and God was there. That's what I understood. And I have a theology degree, but I couldn't think any further than that at that point. I couldn't. And I have shared that with many of you in, in, in times of your grief, and it seems to help because more and more what you don't need in a time of grief is, is a bunch of reasons about God or understanding of God. What you need is a relationship with God. Nothing else will do. David found strength in the Lord, capital O-R-D. That's the covenant relationship name of God for his people. His God. It's a personal relationship. It was David's relationship. David broke down and did his weeping at the feet of God. He approached him relationally, not philosophically. And we know from some of the Psalms that David was not afraid to lay out all his emotion in there in front of God with all of its ugliness and, and, and anger and despair and even doubt. But God took all of that upon himself. And the Bible tells us that God strengthened David. So when you are in the depths of grief, you don't just need to consider all the truth about God and his promises and his plan. You, you, that'll come a little later. What you need at that moment, though, is God himself. You need, to get him, you need to get with him in complete openness and honesty and let him have the whole thing, all of what you're feeling, the whole big, complicated mess, however you understand it, and he will give you strength to continue the fight. But before we end today, I just want to skip ahead a little bit and I want to share with you the ultimate answer to grief because if you really want to put grief in perspective and in its right place, you need to know this. The rest of 1 Samuel 30 tells the story of how God led David and his men on a great recovery expedition. They ran into a runaway Egyptian slave and that Egyptian slave led them to the Amalekite camp where they discover that incredibly in the mercy and providence of God not a single one of these wives or children has been lost. And the Amalekites when they find them are having a drunken party and they're in no shape to defend what they had stolen. So David and his men are able to wipe out all the Amalekites, carry off a lot of spoils as well as their wives and children. In other words, God gave them everything back and then some. Everything back and then some. Now maybe this story seems a little bit too cut and dry and a little bit too cutesy for you since many of our losses seem to have gone farther than that, right? Because our, our dreams, our health, especially people that we know, they seem like they're gone for good. They actually died, unlike the people in this, 1 Samuel 30. Well, David was not gonna be immune to those losses. He was gonna experience those as well. He would never get back the infant son that he lost. He would never get back his son Amnon or his son Absalom. In fact, in about a chapter, he's getting ready to lose his best friend, Jonathan. But in this case, I believe this story is pointing us to a restoration that is greater than anything we read about here. You see, all of our losses, all of our griefs, all of the losses we experience in life really lead us to the same place, and that is to the biggest loss of all. All of the, the rivers of grief, in the end, lead to the same ocean, and that is the prospect of death. Yes, the death of others whom we love, but also our own death, where if you think about it, when we die, that's where we'll lose everything else that we haven't lost to that point, right? 
the grief that comes with death is actually big enough to contain all of the other griefs. That's where they're going when you think about it. None of us escapes death. And we can all hear death's mocking voice calling to us in the midst of all the other times we experience grief. And what death says to us is, hey, you think this loss is painful? Wait until you see what's coming when the big one hits. And it might seem really dark and morbid for us to go to that place, but you know what? We have to go there. And here's why. Because that is where grief meets its end. Because Jesus Christ, the son of David, actually defeated that enemy. Jesus, when he died and rose again for us, what he did was he went into death's camp and he despoiled him completely. There is nothing that Jesus did not recover. Paul says to the Corinthian church in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, all things are now yours. Whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. See, Jesus has gone in there for us and he's recovered it all. Our hopes, our regrets, our future, our relationships, our loved ones, our family, he will take back all that has been stolen. The New Testament has this kind of language all over it. Listen to how the message translation translates Mark 10, 29 and following. They're familiar verses, but listen to them like Jesus said this. Jesus said, mark my words, no one who sacrifices house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, land, whatever, because of me and the message, will lose out. They'll get it all back. But multiplied many times in homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and land, and also in troubles, and then the bonus of eternal life. All these things, when they're lost, either voluntarily or involuntarily, all these things lead us to grieve. But Jesus says, I'm going to get it all back for you. And then some. And then some. Just as God did with David. Jesus will miraculously preserve what you have lost and deliver it back to you in better shape than when you lost it. That's part of what Ephesians calls the riches of his grace that God lavishes upon us. And then there's the final word from Revelation. He will wipe away every tear. It says every There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Every tear. I don't know how. I don't understand the dynamics of how God accomplishes this in areas where our loss seems so profound. I don't know how he accomplishes this even when we lose loved ones who as far as we know didn't know Jesus when they died. But I do know this. That in times of grief, God calls us and invites us to find our strength, not in figuring things out, but in falling into his arms. And he will catch us and he will restore us. And in this age, he gives us a new family and he gives us resurrection power and he gives us unshakable hope. And in the age to come, he delivers back all that we have lost. And then some. And there will be no room for grief or crying or mourning or pain. Grief will no longer make sense because there will be no more loss. And we will finally have the permanence for which we have been searching in vain in this transitory world. Yes, grief is powerful and grief is inevitable. But grief will one day become obsolete. It will no longer be needed because as followers of Jesus Christ, 
we will find that he will restore all that we have lost and then some. Let's pray as we go to communion.